I'm Jonathan Ross, and you're listening to the BAFTA podcast. BAFTA is a platform for open debate, so the views expressed here are not necessarily mine, so go f*** yourself. Hello, and welcome again to the BAFTA podcast. If you can hear me, then my name is Dave Green, and you join me this month at the Hilton in London's West End for the British Academy Games Awards 2013. Following the Film Awards in February, we're back to celebrate the best games of the year. Talking to the creators behind Dear Esther, XCOM Enemy Unknown and FIFA 13. So whether you're an avid gamer, want to get into games or just wondering what all the fuss is about, the next 40 minutes is for you. We're here in the main ballroom, as you can probably hear. The awards are, are just moments away. I, c- I can see tables of games developers reaching as far as the eye can see. And, of course, the, uh, the celebrities who will be giving out this year's awards. In a moment, uh, we'll head outside to talk to some of this year's winners and nominees. But first, let's have a moment in the company of tonight's host, Dara O'Brien. some ways you could say the, the, the list in many years has been particularly the best game has been like blockbuster roller coasters of huge things huge franchises huge this is not that right there, there are some huge of the mass effect is there far cry and big, but yet we've gone independent we've got different schools of thought it's a really interesting time in your industry and as a consumer i'm really looking forward to seeing what happens next year and the next year and the next year well done to you give us a round of applause we'll start the awards in a moment give us a round of applause <laughs> I'm here with uh, Dan Pinchbeck, who's the creative director, and Jessica Curry, who's the composer. And they're both co-directors of The Chinese Room, who have uh, several nominations for, for Dear Esther. So uh, congratulations, both of you. Thank you very, Thank very you. much. That's, yeah, it's amazing. We're absolutely overwhelmed. Um, but you're also husband and wife. Yes. So, uh, that vicious rumour. <laughs> <laughs> We've been together for a while beforehand. We met in 2000. Through, I used to work for a digital arts um, organisation called Whole Time Based Arts, and I was doing their, they were cooperative, and I was doing their shareholders, and realising their shares were horrendously out of date, and they had no idea who were members of the corporate or this kind of stuff. And while I was doing all that, Jess was out in Germany, and she had moved back into the country and had been commissioned by them a few years before, and phoned up to complain about not having received her share certificate. So we sort of crossed like that and uh, mutually kind of got chatting about how difficult it is to run arts co-ops, realised we had really similar views, and ended up getting married. And then we did a couple of arts projects after that, sort of looking at anything from sort of VR, multimedia. I was doing a PhD at the time at Portsmouth University on first-person shooters and was getting hit a lot with teaching for um, doing like full-time Photoshop teaching. It was the kind of thing, I'm never going to finish my PhD unless I manage to get some money from somewhere and control my time a little better. So I applied to the HRC for some funds and got some funds to make some experimental games. And one of them was Dear Esther. And the Jess was obviously going to be doing the music for everything I did anyway. And suddenly we found ourselves running a game studio as opposed to working together on arts projects, I guess. So, Jessica, I mean, can, can, you, can you give us a bit, a bit of a sense of, of what happens in it? And what, what brief were you given for the music, if any? Dear Esther is a game about uh, love and loss and grief and redemption. It sounds really <laughs> depressing, but actually people find it really hopeful as well. There's no gameplay as such. It's about exploration and really a journey of the soul, which sounds very, very poncy now I've said it, but I think it really is a very beautiful and very meditative experience. And we've just been really surprised by how touched and moved people are when they play it. And we've had an extraordinary response from fans and audience. 
and um, I've never had anything like it in terms of my music where people write every day to say how much they love the soundtrack and that is extraordinary to me that people take the time to do that and I can't remember the second part of your question. No, that's right. Oh, when you were told that, the, that this project involved mods, did you think it was going to be a lot of, of music of that era like The Jam and The Who? But I'm sure they all. I've been waiting to get that in for so long. It was a very fine joke, sir. And um, the great thing about working with Dan is that he lets people be good at what they do. He doesn't prescribe and he doesn't inhibit you. He just trusts you. And the only people he collaborates with is people he already trusts to be able to get on with the job. So actually, he's very loose in terms of direction. And he just basically said. This is the island. I started working on it from a very early stage, actually, and sometimes the music came before the visuals, and we kind of played around with that. Um, so Dan, um, for the mod, would be working to the music, um, which I think really gives it an added strength, actually, and I think it's a really interesting way of working. Um, and it was just a joy to work on. Even more of a joy was getting to reorchestrate it because... I had all these sampled sounds, which I hated, but didn't have any budget to do anything else. And then it was just so lovely. And I think there's nothing like live instrumentalists. And I'm really passionate about this in games. I still think they're so underused. I think everyone can hear the difference. And I think it's horrible. It grates on me. And I think if the budget's there, make interesting, extraordinary passionate powerful music and we have a long way to go were there any existing influences that you drew on if you were trying to describe dear esther to, to people at, at an early stage or is it completely unlike everything you can say that if you want <laughs> yes it's utterly utterly <laughs> unique descended in a beam of light from the heavens um probably the biggest influence on the emotional feel and tone of dear esther was uh, stalker the gsc game world's ukrainian shooter which i just think is still probably my favourite game. I think it just has a mood and a tone and an emotion that practically no games manage. And usually, particularly in shooters, they tend to stimulate you all the time. And it kind of covers up some of the shortfalls in the environment. And it is just like a big dumb roller coaster ride. And I love that. But I love the fact in Stalker, they'll just go, and now you're just on your own. Oh, and you're starving to death. And if you don't get some bread soon, you've had it. But the only problem is, is that the bread's sitting in the middle of a radioactive pool. So you're going to die of radiation poisoning or starvation over to you. And I just remember sitting there playing it the first time and thinking, that's just wonderful, that's genius, you know. And you captured that loneliness and that sadness so well. And that was a really, really big influence, I think, on Esther. And you did all the sound design as well. So, And, the, and the, there are dynamic elements, like, for instance, the, the, like the, the voices that come in on the soundtrack. Would you want to talk about those? Yeah, um, I studied at the National Film and Television School and had a very um, traditional education there. But then this amazing sound ar- artist called Evelyn Ficara came in to talk to us. And again, like I think as artists, we all have that moment where someone completely opens your world up. I'd never even heard of sound art at that point. I was 22, I had no idea. And she just came in with these amazing soundscapes. And ever since then... I've been really, really interested in using sound alongside my music and integrating the two, not necessarily seeing them as a separation, but using sound as, again, a part of that journey that we go through. So with Dear Esther, for example, um, the radio mast features so heavily visually, and I really wanted to create a kind of audio echo of the mast so you get um, radio static and that idea that messages and communication is struggling and it's quite fragmented and um, decaying so again I had a lovely kind of visual 
totem in, in a way to work with with Dear Esther and so yeah every project I do really incorporates quite a lot of sound alongside the music and I, I love that. I think what, what makes Jess's music really different and why it really really stands out particularly in gaming is that mix between traditional instrumentation and digital sampling and you tend to get basically in games one or the other you either get big orchestral themes the kind of halos which are then weirdly often done on samples you're kind of going you've got a gazillion dollars and you you used a casio dx5 you yeah or you get kind of 8-bit retro kind of like very digital very computerized sounds nobody else is fusing those two and that's why i think it's really interesting and really different dan jessica thanks very much and enjoy the awards So now I'm here with Jake Solomon, who's the lead designer on XCOM Enemy Unknown. Congratulations, Jake. Why, thank you, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. For anyone who, who perhaps ha- like, hasn't tried a strategy game recently, can you describe what happens in the game? XCOM is a tactics game, a strategy game, as you said, and, and really what that's about is we have the same elements as action games. You have soldiers, you're fighting an alien force, but the idea in XCOM is that you're really worried about the tactics of combat, and so you're controlling multiple soldiers at a time, and it's really important where you position them, where you find cover, how you use ammo, how you load your soldiers out with um, what weapons they're using, and all of those things are, are decisions that you can make sort of as a battlefield commander. So you're not just one soldier, you are the battlefield commander, and then, of course, you run the entire organization as well. So it sort of takes an action game, and it steps back one level and allows you to sort of manage it from a higher level. And XCOM, I understand, is based, or like was partly inspired by the British TV series UFO. Do you ever come across that? Yes, yes, I love that show. I, so when I heard, I heard that same thing too, right? And, and so I went back and I watched a lot of those episodes. And if people have not seen that, they really have to go see this because it's great. They had this secret uh, alien fighting organization hidden in a movie studio. And then they had this moon base where uh, for some reason all the women had purple hair and they wore these really short, shiny skirts. So it was the 60s, I guess. But yeah, and they, they, it was an amazing, it was an amazing show. We're sort of a reimagining of that game. You know, it's, it was my personally favorite game. It was the game that, that got me into the industry and sort of like, you know, it still is to this day my favorite game. And you've still got that enormous underground base with all the different like uh, kind of labs and things working on that. And I mean, as a lead designer, that my, my main insight into this is that amazing piece on the uh, on the Polygon website that just goes into like the uh, all the, all the different demo versions and the torment that you went through producing this. It, like, is is that a normal? Uh, is that what you'd normally do as a lead designer? Or? I mean, it is. It's one of those things that if I was telling people about the industry, something that might surprise them is just how much failure is associated with the job and it sounds funny when I say that but it's true a lot of what you're doing is putting something out there making a game making an experience and then realizing what part of that doesn't work and it is impossible it is impossible to predict 
what's going to work before you actually experience it. There are so many moving parts to a game in terms of what you see, what you hear, what you play, um, the emotions that creates, um, all the different elements that you have to manage that you can't predict like, oh, this is going to be fun or that's going to be fun. Especially in strategy games where the games are more complex and deeper, there are so many interactions that you really have to be willing to fight through failure after failure and saying like we're not giving up until we find that core bit of fun and so that's really what happens is you make a lot of prototypes and they don't work very well and it can be really disheartening that's really a big part of this industry is you have to keep fighting through that until one day and this is true you you one day have this moment where you're playing this game you've been working on for two three years and you go I'm actually having fun, you know, instead of nitpicking this game and being like, oh, God, we got to fix this, we got to fix that. You have this moment where you forget for a minute that you're a developer and you feel like a player and you start getting drawn into your own game. And when that happens, and that happens on every project I've worked on, and I remember when that happened on XCOM, it is this massive sense of relief because you say, okay, like, this is going to work. If we can just fix all the problems left with this game at this point, like, I know that there's something here for people to get drawn into. Are there any uh, tips that you'd give to someone who, who wanted to follow in your footsteps? Are there things that you think have particularly helped you? I would tell people, if they're interested in getting in the industry, first, foremost, understand that it is absolutely possible. Like, we want you, with, like, we want more people in the industry. I don't want anybody competing for my job, of course, so, you know. Don't try it. But no, we, we, it is absolutely possible. That's the first thing people should know. And then the second thing is that all it takes is that get one of those widely available tools. Unity is a, is a free um, development tool or develop a hard skill like art, modeling, or animation. Or I, I really think the easiest skill to use in development is programming. If you could become a programmer, just learn some really basic programming. Even if it's web programming, flash programming, any of those things. And then take an idea you have and then somehow make it reality. Hi, my name is Jim Griffiths and I'm representing uh, Amateur Surgeon Hospital on Facebook uh, and I'm the creative producer and writer for it. So uh, the game is a hospital simulator on Facebook and what you do is uh, you're helped by Alan Probe who is the amateur surgeon from the original games and he helps you set up your hospital uh, and then you take responsibility for hiring new staff, uh, opening the hospital collecting all the, the cash as it's generated and investing further in your hospital to like grow it, share with your friends uh, and keep it rolling like that. What I hope BAFTA is recognizing about our game is uh, the amount of attention and detail that we've put into creating this universe. So I think one of the most satisfying things for us was uh, when we first watched some of our users playing the game for the first time. We found obviously like a lot of issues with the game at that stage because uh, you know we were still we were building something new that we'd never tried before. There are a lot of challenges there. But the first time we watched somebody open their hospital, have a guy who'd been turned into a giant bug walk into their hospital, get swallowed by the giant plant and spat out again, cured, uh, and heard them laugh and saw them respond to that, we were just like, we have something good here. You know, we have something that is the, you know, the core of something that we can feel really good about and we know where to go with this now. 
I've been involved in every one of the now five games that uh, we've made and really what I'm responsible for there is two things. One is I'm creating the characters and the dialogue uh, and the actual stuff that everyone sees uh, and also building the narrative backbone uh, of the game, like working out like at what point major changes and like scenes are going to begin and end and more importantly making that meaningfully connected with the gameplay so it's very much not a case of uh, in like a traditional script or anything saying okay this happens and then this happens and it's all going to go exactly like this with a game you never know quite how the player is going to choose to play there's a lot more options so you're trying uh, as a writer to still hit all the important writerly uh, highs that you'd get from watching like a constructed film but we're also trying to get it to mesh as closely as possible as we can with the game mechanics. And that's like that's a very different uh, set of skills that you need to be able to do that effectively. Because ultimately the, the player has come and they want to play a game. Uh, and that's what they're there for. And you can never, ever, ever lose sight of that. Like game mechanics, game design really is king. Everything I do with the story and the characters is there really to support that and enhance that. And I always think, uh, like, what I'm aiming for personally is if we make a great game, people will enjoy themselves, like, while they're there, they'll enjoy playing the mechanics. And if I've done the characters and story well, then when they go away from the game, like, that is a big part of what they take away with them. And that is a big part of, like, what might stick in their head. And maybe that in itself will become a reason for them to come back and uh, get involved with the game again uh, the next day and the next day. Uh, So it's a way of just like getting a little piece of real estate in their head uh, and that's what we're aiming for. And it's amazing when you pull it off, um, but it continues to be a difficult thing to to achieve. We've sneaked into a a quieter back room uh, with three of the founders of Fat Pebble who are nominated for Clay Jam. Congratulations, guys. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Well, one by one, introduce yourself and just say what you do. Hi, my name's Ian Gilfeather. I'm the technical director at Fat Pebble. I'm uh, Michael Movell, and I'm the creative director at Fat Pebble. I'm Chris Rowe, and I'm the art director. Can, can you tell us how uh, Clay Jam uh, started out? Yeah, sure. Um, so as the creative director, in a normal company, it would probably be my job to, to come up with the idea and um, focus the idea as well. But as we're such a small company there's only three of us we all came up with the idea together so we were were basically in Chris's house and I think the idea started in my mind anyway with um, Claymation and Chris really wanting to do a game all based around Claymation so from there the conversation kind of got round to uh, a a snowball rolling down a hill from that we got the idea of, of, of Clay Jam which in Clay Jam you control a pebble who kind of rolls down a hill, squashing clay monsters as they go and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and being able to squash even bigger things. So at the end of the hill, you smash into this big monster who's like the end of level boss and see how far you can get him. So that's the goal of the game. All right, so Chris, were there other sort of claymation games that you looked at or were you more influenced by traditional things like Morph or Wallace and Gromit? Yeah, well, there's been a few in the past. I mean, there's one that I remember called The Neverhood Chronicles that I, I loved that when I was younger. Your granddad as well, didn't he? He, he taught you how to... He, 
he, he made some claymation animations with you, didn't he? Yeah, that was, well, he got me into it when I was like, sort of, I think it's probably about eight or something like that. And he had this rubbish old VHS camcorder and sort of like, I'd go around theirs for a weekend and he'd go, oh, here you go, you can sit in the shed and here's all this plasticine and I would sort of make these claymations and I was like, I absolutely loved it. Are there any particular, like, you know, big problems that, that you encountered during the development, but you look back on them now and go, yeah, we, like, we nailed that. I'm proud of that. For me, as creative director, it was, I think, right at the end, we still, we had Clay Jam, and it was a good game, but it wasn't quite there. And what we did very near the end, too near the end, really, is, is we introduced a kind of quest system. So uh, Clay Jam has certain achievements that you have to do in order and once you've done them all you defeat the bully beast which is the the big end of level guy and that really I think made a difference to the gameplay and it really kind of focused the gameplay and and the gameplay was good but a bit loose and a bit awkward so I was really happy that we managed to get that in towards the end because it really made the game. I'm just generally pleased that basically it all came together because obviously everything was shot individually sort of in the garage which the garage was a considerable mess at the time when I started so it's kind of we shot everything individually and then we sort of pulled it all together and I think the whole sort of clay jam world sort of really sort of sticks is like a and it's sort of like a full expansive universe so I'm quite pleased with that I have to say as well with with Chris I mean both me and Ian um, were absolutely astounded because he, he literally has made everything in the game in real life models, in real life clay, he's made the font in clay, he's made the the buttons in clay, he's made the monsters in clay, he's animated everything, and for for me and Ian, we would have thought that would have taken like ten times as long as it actually has. But he just he goes home, makes a model, animates it, and he's there. You know, in a few hours, we've got a new monster or we've got a new a new button or whatever it is. But it, it's been amazing to see. The, is the one tip that you'd offer to anyone looking to get into your field? I mean, there's so many things that you should do, but for me, the most important thing is to come up with a game idea. doesn't matter if it's the best idea or not the best idea. It doesn't matter, but get people you know. Uh, if you're not technically gifted, get somebody who can code. If you're not artistically gifted, get somebody who can draw and finish a game. That's the most important thing. If you can go from start to finish on a game, you will have gained so much experience and so much knowledge because the the last you know every stage within the game making process is really complicated but to so many people get so far they get kind of 80% through a game and then they say well I've done enough I'll finish that's it I'll stop and I I know I can do it but that last 20% is really hard it's really uh, kind of polishing the game uh, fixing bugs getting the gameplay as tight as possible and making it a really fun game for me if I saw somebody somebody's CV and they say I've never been in the games industry before, but I have made my own game. That would jump out at me, and I'd say, right, let's let's play that game and see what it's like. But even if it wasn't that good, I'd still be very impressed that they've gone from start to finish and made the game. Thanks very much, Fat Pebble, and uh, enjoy the awards. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you. Thanks very much. So my name's uh, David Rutter. I'm the executive producer for FIFA. I've travelled over to the UK from Vancouver, where I work for EA Sports uh, at the EA Canada campus. So uh, we've been very lucky over the last uh, probably three or four years. We, we seem to be consistently nominated for, for best sports game and occasionally for best online multiplayer uh, nominations, which is great. I think what marks out this year's game in particular is, you know, we've done some pretty cool features, uh, in particular within the gameplay. Uh, last year we kind of had the 
first touch control system which really totally changed the way that the game uh, played injected this sense of you know realism in the form of unpredictability which is something we wanted to achieve across the pitch last year and I think uh, that's been recognised and then I think for online just the sheer volume of people that are playing our game and the, the stickiness of uh, kind of head-to-head ranked games we've had close to 2 billion games played this year of FIFA I think over 1.9 billion anyway so uh, you know it's massively popular it's something which once you start playing is very difficult to put down and crammed full of innovations we're already making the next one if we were able to confirm that and uh, you know seeing the new features coming in uh, during development that's quite a thrill being able to play the first sort of decent build of it where it's starting to get balanced and seeing how those things are going that's a big thrill but ultimately, I still think one of the best things you can see is if you're in a video game shop and you see someone pick up your game and go and buy it, real people will actually take the time to go to a shop, pick up what you made and spend their own money on it. I think that's a pretty, pretty big thrill. And, and, you know, we're kind of lucky. I'm just catching up with Tom Lucas Woodley, who's computer vision engineer on Wonderbook Book of Spells. Great to have you here. So, but for anyone who, who perhaps maybe doesn't have a PlayStation, I don't know what, surely, what century surely. they're living in, or hasn't seen like the, the startling TV ad for Wonderbook Indeed, uh, Book yeah. of Spells, can, can, you, can, you, can you just give us a, a brief description of what happens in the game? Sure. So it's, a, it's an augmented reality book game. Uh, so what that means is you, you, when you buy the game, it comes with an actual physical book, and you play the game by having the book on the floor in front of you, and you're sat in front of your TV, which has a camera on top of it, uh, filming you. So when you look at the TV, you see yourself sat on the floor with this book in front of you. Now, the, the augmented reality tech part of it is used by the game to impose the spellbook graphics. When you look at yourself on the TV, you'll see yourself, but instead of seeing this this book as it is in reality, which is sort of blue with patterns on it, you'll see the spellbook which as you progress through the book, through the different chapters, you work through different spells, you learn different spells, you cast them using the move controller as a wand, and lots of fun, exciting animations happen. And so have you got a copy of the book here? I know, I know this isn't particularly exciting visuals, uh, but, uh, and these are, these are sort of key patterns that, yes. the, that the camera is able to recognise. That's, That's correct. So we've, we've engineered the book to be as visually distinctive as possible so that the software that we've written to track it has the easiest time possible. So, for example, there's on each page there's these big big markers and each one is different. They look like kind of big big square kind of hieroglyphics, yeah. kind of alien writing from the that's future. Right. And what, what are, they, are they called fiducials? They are indeed, yes. That's, 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 that's the only thing I know about, about, about computer vision. <laughs> and, and they always look strange because they're, they're designed to be interpreted by a computer rather, yes. rather than a human visual yes, system. Indeed. Obviously, as you play with the book, they're turning pages, they're putting their hand over the book. They're not always going to be vis- visible. So we have different cues on different parts of the book. Um, so, for example, on the covers, there are these stripes that we look for to, to know where the cover is. We have these distinctive borders around the perimeter of the pages that come into play when these large fiducials in the middle are being occluded. We also have these patterns here around the corners of each leaf that are used. If you imagine when you're turning a page, you can't really see much of that. Mm -hmm. So initially it uses the stripes on the cover, then it will use these borders here to look for the page, 
and then when enough is visible it'll look for these markers and again they're different per leaf so at some point the camera will be able to make out these and go right okay that's the page and then as the page keeps on turning more will become visible it looks quite mystical and it's also got the playstation yes. controller symbols and that's Indeed. for humans yes i mean we wanted wonder book is not just book of spells we've got loads more coming out it had to be distinctive for us as the computer vision people to to track but it had to be generic enough so that it didn't look like a spell book or, or indeed look like anything because it's not just going to be a spell book. So we had quite a few iterations of design, some trade-offs between how we wanted it to look versus having to look nice in some way, and we came up with this design in the end. Hi, I'm Russell Brower, and I'm director of audio and the lead composer of Blizzard Entertainment. Both nominations are for... Diablo 3, one for best music, which I'm personally very excited about, and uh, also best strategy game, which our entire company is excited about. I'm director of the sound department, and I hopefully uh, run it well and not into the ground. And we are responsible for every sound Blizzard makes, be it in the game, the web, uh, cinematics. If it makes a noise and it has Blizzard on it, it comes through our, our group. I actually started out in theme parks, and as it happens, one of the first projects I did was an interactive exhibit for Epcot Center in Florida. And while this wasn't technically a video game that you can take home and play on your console or your computer, it was an interactive project. So I feel like I was one of the first people to do <laughs> uh, interactive audio. Not the first, but, but definitely I was doing it before any of us knew what to call it. And when I look back at my career, even though I spent a lot of time in television and a little time in film, the commonality to me has been interactivity. I think of the theme park as being very relevant to World of Warcraft. Your audience is free roaming. They can do just about anything they want whenever they want. And that has a lot of impact on the soundscape. And there are certain unique challenges that only exist in, a, in an MMO or maybe a sandbox game would be a, another term that some of our competitors use. So in a way, while I didn't design it this way, I feel like everything I've done was kind of preparing myself for this time to work for a company that creates three really specific franchises uh, with three very distinct styles and unique challenges for each. Okay, so the BAFTA is awarded to... Journey. 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 A table that seriously should be wearing pedometers. Again. Journey! And it's been, a, it's been a fun evening, it's been a long evening, and now we're backstage with Jonathan Ross. So, you know, very varied uh, selection of winners now. It's like, is this a glimpse of the future? What are you looking forward to, hoping for in games? Well, you know, I'm looking forward to, like everyone else, I'm looking for the Half-Life 3 eventually coming out, and Gabe, uh, even though I asked him directly, would give me no information about that. But uh, I think it was an interesting evening in that the games that are the big winners were the games that aren't the kind of predictable games. They're not like number three or four in a franchise. They're not necessarily games which we've seen before. The big winners tonight were Journey and Unfinished Swan. And they're kind of games which were innovative and which were different and which gamers interacted with in a very different way to what we come to think of as the kind of big games. So I think it was a very interesting evening and I suspect developers will take notice of what happened tonight. And I'm afraid that's almost all we've got time for. Remember, you can get all the latest news on upcoming BAFTA events by signing up for our fortnightly newsletter on BAFTA.org and on Twitter, at BAFTA Guru and at BAFTA Games. 
A few upcoming notices. On Monday 11th of March in London, we have a game developer Q&A with Ken Levine, talking about his hotly anticipated steampunk odyssey, Bioshock Infinite. Tickets are £5 from BAFTA.org. We're at the BFI South Bank on the 14th of March, talking to cinematographer and Polanski collaborator Pavel Edelman. And at the ICA on the 3rd of April, we'll be in the company of archive producer Sam Dwyer to find out about sourcing and licensing archive footage for your documentary films. If you've been inspired by any of the topics described in this podcast, or if you have any feedback, please get in touch at podcast at BAFTA.org. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and if you like today's episode, leave us a review and help us get up the charts. But before we go, let's hear one last time from our guests, this time on what the future holds for games developers. Here's their predictions. It's going to become more and more accessible to more and more people. There's going to be games uh, developed over over many platforms simultaneously with people being able to play as they can already at the moment on their iPhone or on their computer, on their tablet, on their Xbox. A lot of like converging gaming, uh, I believe, is like is going to happen there. I mean, you, you, you read a lot and hear a lot about people saying, oh, it's got to be freemium games, it's got to be paid games, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. But I'd love to make a strategy game that isn't so complicated to, to interact with that it puts casual gamers off. So I'd like to, to, to do that myself. So we're, we're want to target a mainstream audience is what Mike's saying and I think that is the future of, of games industry as a whole as well it's, it's happened over the last few years and I think as that goes on bringing to those new audiences what as gamers we know and love as good gaming experiences but in a way that more people can play and enjoy is, is the future that's kind of where we want to be Science is advancing all the time speaking not about games I think mobile use of computer vision will, will come through. We've seen Google Glasses have been announced, you know, that can be overlaid onto the world. Face recognition, people recognition, driverless cars, there's loads of applications and I think, you know, from seeing cameras now have face detectors on them pretty much as standard, you, you sort of expect when you look through the viewfinder, you see little squares popping up on people's faces and, you know, that wasn't there when I first started my PhD, but these things over time they get more and more refined and then they get good enough to, to go out into the public realm that's just going to carry on and there'll be more and more clever stuff coming through I believe that technology is, is really a double-edged sword and we have in the last few years achieved something that sound designers have always dreamed of and that's the ability to play as many sounds as you, you could possibly want, or at least uh, until it impacts the frame rate of the video game. But that's still a pretty large number of sounds. And given that, now the responsibility is to not overdo it. And, we f- and, and just like when uh, a dubbing mixer is uh, doing the final mix of a feature film, and scene by scene, sometimes frame by frame, is they're choosing what is contributing to the story and leaving out hopefully, what detracts from it, and leading the ear, much as the visual editor is leading the eye through the picture, we have the same responsibility as, as audio professionals in video games. And just because we could play every sound on the screen that you can see, you know, if there's a thousand pigs on the screen, we could put a thousand pig sounds on the screen. But if we did, the sound would be turned off by our players in a split second. We don't want to do that. So 
we need to hone and our, will be for the rest of our careers honing our abilities and, and leading the ear through this experience. I think that one of the things that's happening in the industry is that technology is advancing slower and slower. You know, I, the, the jumps when I first started in the industry, you used to be able to sell a game just on how good it looked, right? And nowadays, like, that's sort of like the bar for entry. Like, they all need to look good. They all, and, and certainly some games look marvelous, but that's not really going to sell games anymore. Now, technology is used to sort of support these incredible designs, maybe large worlds or open worlds, or play The Walking Dead and you see the animation on the characters' faces, which gives you this sort of sense of emotion. Like, that's the technology that matters now. And so I think that as a designer, you have all this incredible power at your disposal. The, the art is incredible, the technology is incredible, and now you're really not nearly as limited as you were before. And so, yes, it becomes more and more important, like, well, what about your game is different, and, and what, is, what about the gameplay is different, and what's innovative about it, what's this, how can I have a new experience? And that really comes down to design, is like, how can you create a new experience for the player, something that they haven't seen before, because there are so many games, and we're, we're becoming an industry that has made a lot of different titles, and so I think as a player, I'm always most caught by a game that gives me a new experience where I say, like, whoa, that's different. You know, that really excites me because it's something different. And that really comes down to design. And so that's why it's really exciting to be in design right now. The thing that I hope continues to happen is that story and character and that, like, heart and soul of the games that, like, a lot of us really love continues to develop and we find new ways to bring people in uh, and make them feel that uh, these games are really worth something and uh, are deep, lasting experiences. I hope that's something that continues to develop just as much as, uh, as the technology does. I think Dear Esther was part of a wave, which I think we can also see there's games like Journey and Proteus, of games which are much more are rooted in the idea of what experiences the player having, not what are the mechanics, not what's the platform, but what experience do we want the player to have, how do we focus everything on that experience and that's an attitude towards design which I think is a lot more common now and even designers who might be making games which are on the surface appear to be more kind of traditional than those games are talking in those terms now and that's a, a quite a radical sea change that's happening right across the industry and then we know sort of like big AAA designers who talk in those terms are all about how do we protect the emotional investment what's the arc what's the journey for the player so I think we will see more games that are more about human experiences to things where I think there's going to be to be really kind of like I guess a little bit crass about it like the Master Chief is going to take his helmet off a hell of a lot more in the future I think there's always going to be room it's a broad church you know the amazing thing about the industry is it is expanding but I think it is expanding really rapidly and I think it's going to be a very exciting time within the next five years for games and I'm just really glad that we're working in it at this time Thanks to all our guests and thanks to you for listening. My name is still Dave Green. The producer was Matt Hill with the help of John Maloney. Now stop listening to podcasts and go and actually make that thing you're always going on about. See ya.